All right, Jesse, last week's episode was really sad. People are just looking for love, huh? What's the story this week? When a good-hearted father and pediatric AIDS researcher falls violently ill after a night of bowling, doctors and detectives alike rush to discover what may be the cause of his illness and who may be responsible. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about bright days, bad nights, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover our show. Also, if you're interested in supporting this show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support and benefits. Because what are we up to right now, Jesse? We're going to be up to like 23 by the time this comes out for our bonus episodes, right? So a lot of good content for you to catch up on. Yep. And now we're also promising a minimum of two, two stories per month bonus. <laughs> Thank you, Andy, for pitching in there <laughs> with your amazing content. Speaking of Patreon, Andy, I think we have some wonderful people to thank and shout out this week. We do. Welcome to Nicole S. and John R., Leah P. and Patricia P., Yolana M., and Jennifer H. Welcome, y'all. And I actually have a recommended case by two different listeners this week. So a big thanks to Kate M. K. and Jennifer M. for this mind-boggling story. I think we should just jump right in. What do you think? Let's do it, babe. On November 15th, 2000, Eric Miller was having a well-deserved boys' night out. The 30-year-old pediatric AIDS researcher put in long hours at the lab, but also made sure to prioritize his family time. His world revolved around his beautiful scientist wife, Anne, and the apple of his eye, baby daughter Claire, who was just two months shy of her first birthday. Anne had assured him that all was fine at home. He should absolutely go out with three of her coworkers for some bowling and some beer. The men had plenty to talk about between frames. All were scientists and mostly family men. So it was sure to be a night of friendly competition between like-minded individuals. The night started off well enough. A pitcher of beer was purchased and poured. And when Eric took a sip, though, he remarked that the beer had kind of a funny taste. But when the other men said that theirs was just fine, he kind of shrugged and continued drinking. You know how sometimes it like your sinuses or something can make things taste different too? Absolutely. And depending on the beer, there's a, so many different craft beers these days that just have different flavors, different levels of hops. It just might be something that you're not used to. Totally. He thought it was one of those things. He just kind of disregarded it because everyone else said that the beer was fine. He shrugged and continued playing. But after that, he began to experience some violent stomach cramping and vomiting. Not normal. Absolutely not normal. And it got so bad that Eric actually brought out a trash can so that he could continue playing and throw up if necessary. 
man, like just excuse yourself and go home. That's not fun. That was some commitment to the game. Yeah. Well, eventually he did call it and he went home to sleep it off, but he was racked with pain all night. And it was kind of like food poisoning on steroids. He knew at that point that something was very, very wrong. And he hadn't wanted to wake up his wife because the baby was sleeping. And he was thinking, well, I don't want to make her take me to the emergency room because then she'll have to get the baby up and it's a whole thing. And he tried to suffer through. But by six in the morning, he said, I can't do this anymore. I've got to go to the hospital. Yeah. I'm glad that he had that realization. Yeah. So he was checked into the emergency room and Eric had faith that night. He had faith in the medical system to cure him. He had faith that his loving wife would stand by him. And he had faith that he still had a very long life ahead so he could watch his daughter grow up. But unfortunately, that faith was misplaced and that would not be what happened. In less than 20 days from the bowling night, Eric Miller, father, husband, brother, son, and tireless researcher who sought to ease the world's suffering would be dead. No. I know. Not too long after this, one of his cursed bowling buddies would also suffer a similar fate. What? It would take years and one incredibly tenacious homicide investigator to reveal the diabolical truth and the callous, cold-hearted person who struck Eric Miller down in the prime of his life. I know we always love a tenacious detective. We do love a tenacious detective, and he really is... I'll get to this, this detective later and kind of introduce him. But his name is Detective Chris Morgan. And I think he was actually a sergeant by the time he retired. But he is a character. So I read Deadly Dose by Amanda Lamb. And she really spent a lot of time with him. He is the backbone of this narrative. He has great asides, fantastic stories. And he was the one really driving this case forward. But I also watched a forensic files from season 13 episode 31. It's called Hairline. And he's on it as well. And he's just something else. He looks like Dennis Farina had a baby with Marlon Brando. Oh, my God. That's kind of like how I was imagining him, actually. He always wears this white fedora. It's his trademark. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, he's incredible. So we'll talk about him at length. And the book was absolutely fantastic, too. So thank you. I think Kate was the one who sent it to me, but Jennifer might have as well. So thank you guys for recommending this case. And also, you know, I love a book. So thank you. Let's uh, talk about this wonderful man who was gone much, much too soon. Eric Miller was born in 1970 in a small town called Cambridge City, Indiana. He was the third and last child born to doting parents, Varys and Doris Miller. And he was the only boy. So he's the baby boy with two older sisters. And they just doted on him. They loved him so much. And the feeling was very much reciprocated. He loved his big sisters. And this was a very close family. Eric was just kind of an all-around great kid. He was quite literally an altar boy. <laughs> he played tennis. He served as vice president of his class. He was a member of National Honor Society. And Eric was a really good-looking guy. He looks like one of those like party of five boys. It's like an amalgamation of like all of them. Scott Wolf and the other guy from Lost. It's like 
he doesn't look like any of them exactly, but it's like that clean cut, brunette, like sweet, wholesome, like lean guy look. That's exactly what he looked like. He just looked like he'd be on one of those like wholesome family dramas from the 1990s. Like the puppy dog mop hair, too. No, he had shorter hair. But yeah, he was a cutie pie. So he was really popular with the girls because he's got this very earnest, sweet face. And in high school and college, he did date a lot, but he was far from a player because no one ever got too far with Eric because he was waiting to have sex until marriage. There was a religious aspect, but there was also just him having a feeling that there was this incredible woman out there who was going to be his wife. And he felt like somewhere deep down he wanted to wait for her. Well, Eric did not have to wait terribly long. He didn't get into his 30s having to wait too long because he met Mrs. Wright in college at a biology class at Purdue University, and her name was Anne Breyer. And this pairing made absolute sense. Like, we talk a lot about people who are just passionate about each other, but their family situations are different or they have all these compatibility issues. Just on paper, these two matched up perfectly. Anne also came from a small town. Hers was in Pennsylvania. Her family also practiced a Christianity-based faith. And she was one of three kids with two sisters as well. Wow. Yeah, she was the oldest. That was the only difference. But they had very similar backgrounds. And they were both good-looking, like very clean-cut. They both wanted to be scientists. And they had the same hopes for the future. They wanted to get their PhDs. They wanted to contribute meaningfully to scientific research. And they really did want to have a bunch of kids. So you could not get any more compatible as far as the life journey that they both seemed to share. Well, Eric definitely thought so because he proposed on Valentine's Day 1992 when both he and Anne were about 21 years old. Whoa. Yeah, they were married early the next year in the Catholic church where Eric had gone as a child. After they graduated, both Anne and Eric elected to pursue doctoral degrees at North Carolina State University in Raleigh. They made this decision because, A, the university had offered them both positions, which was great for a married couple, but also because Anne's parents had recently relocated to the area. So this was such a boon because... You know, with two people that want to go on to these advanced degrees and then move into medical research, but also at the same time want to have a family, they really do need some family support around to help raise their children. So it kind of seemed like a win-win, plus North Carolina in general is just like a lovely climate to live in. Yeah, and a great place to raise a family, I feel like. Exactly, exactly. Some people think that, though, while Eric was committed to making lower pay, as a researcher and getting to do something great for the world. Anne eventually realized that she was doing a lot of school for what was going to amount to not so much money. So she ended up dropping out of her PhD program and taking a very well-paying job at a pharmaceutical company. The pharmaceutical giant she worked for is now called GlaxoSmithKline, and at the time it was called GlaxoWelcome. Yeah, that's a hard realization to have happen when you're like knee deep in school and not to mention school, but you're like PhD degree. Yes. And and I think that she just kind of thought, I want us to be comfortable and one of us has to do it. And Eric was the type of person who was married to his convictions. 
Yeah. And if she could opt out easier, then that made sense. Yeah, she could opt out easier. And she was comfortable with doing that and providing hopefully a little bit more security for her family. And of course, like Anne liked more of the finer things in life than Eric did anyway. So this was like she was taking responsibility for what she wanted in life. She was going for it and going for the job she wanted. Eric earned his doctoral degree in 1999 and started working as an AIDS researcher at the UNC Chapel Hill Cancer Center. By this time, they had already bought a house. They each had great jobs in the fields that they had wanted to work in. And they were both approaching 29 years old, having been together for a very long time at this point. Formidable years. Yeah, both Eric and Anne very, very much wanted to get pregnant and have children at this point. But it proved to be harder than they thought. So they were having infertility issues. And this was very hard on Anne. She was a very type A person. And so often, for whatever reason, women who experience infertility, and, and I can tell you myself that I experienced it to a certain point, we believe it's our fault. We think that there's something we're doing wrong, that we deserve it somehow that we're failing somehow, even though obviously in retrospect, you can look back and say that's not the case at all. And I think for somebody like Anne who had achieved so much and always gotten what she worked towards, this was especially galling. And also their families were all having kids. So they had a ton of nieces and nephews. And she even wrote to someone, I think it was a friend, that it was drive it was driving her up the wall like that she was having all these mixed emotions and feeling jealous or sick or avoidant even watching her sister be pregnant or have her children even though she didn't want to have those feelings you can't help it when you're in that place no not at all and i do also feel like the type a thing as a person you are kind of hardwired to like be in control of every situation of your life. Like that's like your type A. You need to like shut your doors. You need to organize everything. This is the timeline. And like when that doesn't happen the way that you expect it to be, I think it's natural for a type A person to be a lot harder on themselves about it, even though it is not justified emotionally. It's, it's true. I mean, you are pretty fortunate that it happened. I mean, it happened earlier than your timeline imagined, but at least it wasn't like if, if it had stretched on a few years, I think you would have gotten really stressed out. No, I always thought that I was going to have a really, really hard time with it because I knew what type of person I was and because I had so many friends that I'd sat next to go through it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, it's going to take us years. I think I really mentally prepared myself for it. But yeah, I can't imagine like for my personality it, going through something like that, I, I, it would have been devastating. Definitely. And also as a planner, like obviously these two have planned out their whole lives. Like from pretty much the first time they met, they knew that they wanted to plan out how they were going to spend their 20s and 30s together. So yeah, this was really hard. So they started fertility treatments, eventually moving all the way up to IVF. And I think that they had maybe a, a failed cycle or two before miraculously it worked. And beautiful Claire Elise Miller, their daughter, came into the world on January 17th of 2000. Also, people weren't talking about it nearly the same amount that they're talking about it now, too. So there's not as much of the social support with fertility issues. Oh, yeah. They started trying to get pregnant, I believe, in like 1997. Yeah, that's hard. So Eric was over the moon to be a father. People described him as funny and full of life. 
He not only gave out the full-size candy bars at Halloween, apparently he would make up like little goodie bags for all the kids. Oh my God, stop. In the neighborhood. Yeah, he loved like his nieces, his nephews. He loved kids in general. So now that he's getting the opportunity to be a father, he was just glowing. Claire's daycare provider said that usually Eric would drop off and Anne would pick up. And sometimes he would just let them know that he had like an opening in his schedule or a canceled meeting and he'd drop her off like an hour or two late just because he wanted to spend more time with her. And as that age, too, it's like they don't really give much back. <laughs> they don't when they're infants. Yeah, it's not exactly like you're going to the playground and getting ice cream or anything. <laughs> By outside perspectives, this was a perfect little family. I mean, Andy, Anne and Eric even taught a marriage preparation course at the church that they attended. They counseled other young couples about to get married about what marriage entails and how to have a successful one. I mean, this was definitely a couple that people aspired to be like. Which is why it was so hard for both families, as well as their church and community, when Eric fell ill and he struggled to improve. Early on the morning of November 16th, 2000, Eric was admitted to the ER with extreme nausea, cramping, vomiting, and diarrhea. Like I said, this was like food poisoning on steroids, and the doctors had no idea what was the cause. They initially thought that it might be a viral infection, but when Eric's condition continued to worsen, he was transferred to a larger hospital where they did extensive testing for heavy metals and other toxins, including common poisons. But when they got the lab reports back, there was nothing that was obviously sticking out as being a concern. Slowly, Eric did begin to improve. On November 24th, which was a little more than a week after the bowling night, Eric was able to be discharged. The new hospital, the larger hospital he'd gone to, obtained a urine sample for Eric and sent it to an out-of-state lab before he was discharged because they still had no idea what had nearly killed him. So they just were like, on our discharge, let's just send this out to see if we can figure out what it was in case it comes back. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, whatever the reason that Eric was improving, he did seem a lot better. By Thursday, November 30th, now two weeks since the incident, Eric was able to go to the bathroom by himself. He was able to go outside for a short walk for the first time since the bowling night. That's how badly he was afflicted by what happened. So his parents were there as well. They came as soon as he got sick. And so they had been staying with the couple and helping take care of Eric. So the following night, after he really seemed like he was finally on the mend, they went out to dinner. His parents went out to dinner because they needed a break. They had been at the hospital 24-7 and also helping take care of him at home. So they went out to have a break. They had dinner. And they left Eric home with his wife, Anne, and their baby, Claire. Well, the couple ended up eating a chicken and rice dish that had been prepared by someone from their church, and they went to bed. At 11 p.m., Eric woke up with all of his terrible symptoms back in full force. Oh, my God. He was admitted to the ER once again at 4 in the morning on Friday, December 1st, but this time he wasn't improving. As his condition deteriorated, the Rex Hospital got a call from the UNC Hospital saying that the lab results from Eric's discharge workup had come back. 
and Eric had a fatally high level of arsenic in his system. Later on, the hospital and the authorities would realize that a horrible miscommunication had occurred the first time Eric was tested. The arsenic levels on the report had been misconstrued. The person that either was communicating with the other medical professional or the person who was hearing it, it's unclear, thought that the arsenic levels were in the urine, not the blood. And apparently that level of arsenic in urine is not a super cause for concern. However, if that same level is in the blood, that means there's a big old problem. That's crazy. I don't want any arson in my pee or blood. I mean, again, guys, every time we get into these medical questions, we sound like doofuses because we don't know what we're talking about. But I would imagine it's because, you know, you're eliminating waste. So any like toxins or anything would come out of your body. Jesse, you're so smart. It shouldn't be like circulating in your blood. Going into your heart. Yeah, there's probably lots more reasons, but we'll leave it at that because every time I, I try to say something about medical stuff that I don't know about or pronounce anything, I get emails. So I'm like, I'm calling this one a day. So yeah, this was a devastating mistake. And later on, Detective Morgan is like, some people were mad about this because potentially he could have survived had that been communicated properly the first time the tests were administered. Communicated or understood. We don't really know. Yeah. And the other thing is that he makes the point that there's only one person responsible for Eric's death, and that's the person who poisoned him. When the hospital realized that Eric had indeed been poisoned, they called the police who were able to rush the hospital to try to get a statement from Eric, who was obviously very, very, very ill at this point. But they did manage to speak with him. And he said that he had not poisoned himself. This was not a suicide. He had not been around arsenic to his knowledge, and he really could not think of one person that would wish him dead. And Detective Morgan would later say that this was a rare case in which not a single person had anything bad to say about him. No one could think of any reason why anyone would want Eric Miller dead. So this is very perplexing. Eric was sadly too far gone, and despite the medical staff's best efforts, he was moved into intensive care, and then he succumbed to the poisoning at 2.50 in the morning on December 2nd. And I want to be very clear about how painful and horribly drawn out this death was, because I think that we have this idea of poisoning from movies where somebody basically drinks a poison and then they immediately croak. Yeah. But this was very torturous and it was very hard for those who loved Eric to have to watch it because he suffered weeks of agonizing pain, hallucinations to the point where they had to basically bind him to the bed. I knew you were going to say that. That's so sad. He lost the ability to walk or control his bowels. I mean, this was a horrible way to go that took a very long time. So, you know, when we think of poisoning as some sort of like more gentle way to kill, that's not necessarily the case. But yeah, this was made so much worse, the suffering, by the fact that at this point, everyone knew that someone had likely willingly subjected him to this. Somebody chose to poison him. 
Because the police had searched Eric's lab, they also searched the Miller's home to just rule out that it was somehow environmental and therefore an accident, especially because he's a scientist. Totally. But they came up empty-handed. So it did appear that it was indeed intentional. (sighs) So sad. The police interviewed Anne, who did seem very genuinely distraught. She also had a hard time coming up with someone who despised Eric, saying that Literally, the only thing that she could think of was that there was some sort of neighborhood dispute about one of the people's fences. And she said that, like, maybe there there had been some words exchanged, but it was more like a community thing. Like, he was, like, on the side with some other neighbors, too. And this particular neighbor was like, no, we didn't have a situation at all. Also, you have to think practically, even if this neighbor disliked him, he wouldn't really have access to Eric's food and drink regularly in a way that he would have been able to poison him because they weren't hanging out socially. For that reason, obviously, Anne was the prime suspect. But based on her demeanor, Eric's family completely trusted Anne 100%. And there were no reports from anyone who knew the couple that there was any problem in the relationship The original detectives on the case just did not think that it was Anne. At least the original detectives on the case didn't think it was Anne anyway. Soon after Eric's death, veteran homicide investigator, our guy, Chris Morgan, took over the case and his gut screamed that perfect Anne was not so innocent. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. They barely interviewed her. They were just like, nope, we're going to give her space. She's grieving. It just doesn't seem likely. No one thinks it's her. Well, Detective Morgan got in there and he was like, yeah, I got a bad feeling about this bitch. Something is not right here. So he said, number one, you never, ever discount those closest to the victim. No, especially if it's poison. Yeah. Absolutely. You have to look at the spouse, the kids, the parents, the best friend, everyone that's close. He said, if it was me, if I was murdered, I want them to grill the heck out of my loved ones. Like, put my wife in the hot seat. Put the people who live with me there. Because if they didn't do it, then it'll be proven. He's like, you always have to look at those closest to the victim. And then he said that there was just a gut feeling that Anne was a self-absorbed charmer who did not have good intentions. And some of it was intuition, but some of it was just some small things that stood out to him. For instance, when Eric first went into the hospital and it got dire enough that first time when he was in the hospital for about two weeks, that at one point he had to be moved into the intensive care unit, which, you know, means it's very serious. Instead of being by his side, only an hour or so after he was moved into the ICU, Anne decided to leave to go take Eric's hair appointment. So Eric had had a haircut appointment on the books, which clearly he wasn't making it to. And instead of canceling it, she decided to go and get her hair done. Does she have like a Kate plus eight haircut or what's going on that she could take his appointment? Because I feel like those... I don't know, but they must have given her some extra time because Detective Morgan said it wasn't like, oh, I'll go take the appointment and just get my head right, maybe get a shampoo because I've been stuck at this hospital. She went 
out and got like a whole new do. Like I'm talking highlights, a new cut, the whole thing. It was like a couple hours, not like a quick shampoo and trim over here. Yeah, no, that's psychotic. That's what she's saying. She said, oh, well, Eric had an appointment, so I just decided to go take it. We don't know. She could have just decided to go get herself a new do. Yeah, but I've had family members in the ICU before who aren't my spouse, and I've been by their side while they're in the ICU. For sure. That's what Morgan said, too. He said there's something wrong with that. There would be something wrong with it if my wife did it. It's not what would be expected of a normal spouse or loved one in this situation. I certainly wouldn't. I can't imagine leaving Nathaniel's side. No, I even my papa, my mom's dad, like when he was in the ICU, I was there. I flew to Ohio and sat by his bed. Like, I, you don't do that. You don't do that. She also lawyered up with a very good and very expensive defense attorney almost immediately after Eric's death before she was ever, like really being questioned in any capacity. Now, these things alone, we certainly could argue devil's advocate all day about maybe that was her stress relief, you know, it's smart just in case, always having an attorney, it's not a bad idea. But these were the things that were standing out to Detective Morgan. And of course, at the end of the day, you always have to take a very, very close look at the spouse as we've come to discover in our 149 episodes of this show. Well, and she's guilty as fuck. <laughs> You love like determining somebody's guilt like in the first 30 minutes. And I don't even mind it. I don't. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> well, the first thing Detective Morgan did was subpoena Eric and Ann's emails and phone records. Eric's emails were clean as a whistle. As expected, Eric did not have an illicit lover. There were no skeletons hiding in that inbox. It's actually kind of sad and cute. They were mostly work-related emails, but the ones that weren't were him sharing pictures and giving people updates about his baby. Oh, my God. My skin is crawling with how much I detest this woman. I mean, he was a real deal, wholesome, loving family man. But as you can probably suspect, Andrea, Anne was a totally different story. I mean, you didn't, like, bury the lead a lot in this one, you know? <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't <laughs> pussyfooting around this one. No. I appreciate it when you do, but this is not one of those. <laughs> this is not, this is not one. We, we went right for it. So I guess in the year 2000, Anne didn't realize that her emails would all become part of this investigation. I mean, you know, it's, she thought in 1999 they were all going to disappear. Disappear into the ether. Poof. At New Year's Eve. <laughs> that's true. Maybe that's what she thought. So those messages revealed that allegedly above board, church going, sweet scientist Anne, the mother of a not yet one year old baby, was having not one, but two torrid affairs. <gasps> also, I'm just like imagining this bitch like handling arsenic around a baby. Like, the Benadryl that our doctor prescribed Echo for itching, I act like it's poison because I'm so nervous about having it around her. Yeah, but she's also a scientist. So she's used to handling a lot of dangerous materials or chemical compounds in a way that's very sanitary and has a lot of restrictions around it. I mean, personally, I agree with you as a layperson. That sounds terrifying to me. Yes. Or even having it somehow in the home. With a child who is likely at 
10, 11 months old, crawling around and getting into stuff. I think that was probably the least of her concerns at this point, though. <laughs> I don't think she was very super considerate wife and mother at this juncture. Let's just say that. So she's having two affairs. But the part that really got the detective's interest was that one of those affair partners was a coworker at the pharmaceutical company. And it was one of the coworkers who had been out bowling with Eric on the night that he began getting ill. Bum, bum, bum. You did have a little twist. Yeah. So this man's name was Daryl Willard. He was a 37-year-old married father of a two-and-a-half-year-old little girl. Daryl was the pride of his family. He had come from a small town in Arkansas where he was the valedictorian of his graduating class, and he became the first person in his family to go to college. Daryl had married his college sweetheart. He had obtained a master's degree. And then in 1990, he went to work for GlaxoSmithKline, where he would eventually meet Ann Miller. On November 15th, the day that Daryl had gone bowling with his lover's husband, at 10.15 that morning, Ann Miller had emailed Daryl to tell him, quote, that his beautiful blue eyes stirred her soul. She said that he should not fear crying because his tears were like a diamond necklace around her neck. Oh, these poets. She's basically telling him emotion is awesome and I want to experience and feel so much with you. I'm like, okay, if I didn't know you were a, a psycho already, the fact that you referred to someone's tears as a diamond necklace around your neck would give big old red flags. I mean, now we know why she dropped out of her PhD degree. I don't know if creative writing was part of it, but agreed. <laughs> it goes on. She said, I want to touch you in places that you knew not existed. So he doesn't know his dick exists? Maybe she's going for, like, the taint. Deeper, deeper than that. Oh. Uh, backdoor forest. She's going to take a walk on the wild side. Take you to places you've never been before. One thing I'll never do is make you feel not wanted. No, because I'll poison you before I do. Yeah, maybe she just sounds like, um, like, truly, madly, deeply. Is that, like, Soundgarden? Like, those really cheesy songs of the late 90s? Totally. So Detective Morgan also soon discovered that the weekend before the bowling night when Eric first got sick, Daryl and Anne had lied to their spouses. I believe that Daryl said he was going for a reunion and Anne said she had a work function. Instead, they had enjoyed a romantic weekend at the Ritz-Carlton in Chicago, where according to their bill, they enjoyed several in-room dining meals. We both know what that means. That means they didn't leave the bedroom. By the time the investigation began, Daryl and Anne had called each other over 100 times, basically just in the month of November. Ew. Yeah, and it was, I believe, Anne at 79 and Daryl at like 38. So she's calling him twice as much as he's calling her. They had logged 576 minutes of phone conversations in one month. Sorry, and what month is this? November. So he's getting sick. The bowling night was November 15th. Yep. So that means that's like 9.6 hours on the phone in November 
well, half of the month her husband is in the hospital. The lovers even talked for 24 minutes, just two hours before Eric died on December 2nd, which was the middle of the night because he passed away at around three in the morning. And then, interestingly enough, after Eric died, the calls completely stopped. All communication stopped. The police interviewed the two other men who had gone out bowling with Daryl and Eric, and they said that in general, it was kind of weird the whole night. I mean, obviously, because Eric got sick. They said that Daryl doesn't usually buy pitchers of beer. It didn't sound like this was a hard drinking crowd anyway, because there was one guy that didn't have any of the beer because he just wasn't a drinker. And they said it was not usual for Daryl to suggest to buy beer and be like, everyone have a beer. Let's all drink. And they also said that it was Daryl who had very specifically handed Eric the glass of beer. So they think it could have just been like the arsenic poisoning that night. Yes. Crazy. Furthermore, Anne had claimed to be at home with her daughter all night on the night that Eric went bowling. But her cell phone had pinged off a tower that would actually put her outside of the bowling alley. Maybe to give her lover some arsenic, maybe to chat, who knows. And her phone had also called her own home, ostensibly to check her answering machine messages, which if she was home, she wouldn't need to do that. She would just press the button. Yeah, we all know how those worked. (laughs) Yes, we do. Yes, we do. We remember them. My parents still have an answering machine. That's dope. Is that crazy? Yeah, I bet Gen Z's would, like, love that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it gets even more insane because the police search the lab where Daryl and Anne both work, and guess what they find? (gasps) A ton of poison. (laughs) They do. They find 200 milliliters of an arsenic compound called sodium cacodylate or cacodylic acid, as forensic files called it. Or the guy was like, cacodylic acid. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I could do it. I love his voice so much. Well, apparently this was a totally normal amount of this compound for a lab to stock, the use of which was not monitored by any cameras. It did not need to be signed out. So they never knew who was taking it when. And this amount was absolutely enough to kill a person. Okay, then why can't you regulated a little bit more. I mean, I'm sure at this point, 23 years later, they certainly are. You know, it takes like one spouse murdering a spouse. And then all of a sudden that arsenic compound's got to be locked up, ruining it for everybody. Well, one of Daryl's friends claimed that Daryl had been deeply depressed over the recent months. I don't know what was going on in his home life, but also there was a major merger going on at the pharmaceutical company. And I think he was a little concerned about his position and what was going to happen to it. For whatever reason, Daryl had been very bummed out. And that friend said, though, in October, maybe late October... All of a sudden, Daryl had a new pep in his step. He seemed like his old self. He seemed energetic and excited about life again. Something to live for. And according to the phone calls and emails, this is exactly around the time that these coworkers started getting romantic and sexual together. 
So Eric's handing out gourmet goodie bags on Halloween and she's boning her coworker. Yes. Detective Morgan had a very keen sense that Daryl Willard was a patsy. That was his gut intuition, that this was not a guy who just wanted to off his lover's husband. He believed that given the time of when the affair started and how fast things unfolded, that Anne had targeted Daryl Willard because he was vulnerable. He was obviously hungry for some sort of affection or attention and depressed. And that she had seduced him with love and sex, the whole, I promise you'll never be not wanted, I want to know everything about you, the intense caring of an attractive woman, a very attractive woman that he respected also from a coworker perspective, and then manipulated him into helping her kill her husband. So that was the detective's gut feeling about how this was all going down. The dynamic, yeah. At this point, Morgan wanted to arrest Daryl right away. He's like, look, we've got the motive. They're clearly having an affair. We have the means. I mean, he has access to the murder weapon, the poison. Yeah. Unregulated access to this. And he was the one who literally handed Eric a, quote, funny tasting beer only about an hour or so before he got so desperately ill that he ended up in the ICU. To him, he's like, we've got to arrest him right away and get to work on him to get Anne. But the ADA thought that it was premature and that if they arrested him at this point, it could blow the whole case. He did not believe at that point that there was enough evidence. So crazy how political it is sometimes. It's so political and... I think now because Morgan's retired, I mean, I don't know if he cared back then either. He pulled no punches. I mean, he is in this book just like shitting all over this ADA that I won't mention because he's really angry about how things unfolded with this case because there was a lot of barriers between bringing these people to justice. So Morgan thought that this was a huge mistake, obviously, but he did not have any choice but to continue investigating and hoping that he could give this ADA enough that the ADA felt like he could arrest Daryl at that point. So they obtained a search warrant for the home that Daryl shared with his wife, Yvette, and their daughter. On Sunday, January 21st, 2001, Morgan briefly questioned Daryl before Daryl's attorney came around. And first of all, he said that they went in with a search warrant and he basically said, okay, we're going to search your house, but I, I need to talk to you privately without your wife around because he was going to bring up the affair. And he said that Daryl told him that he would speak to him privately, but his wife knew about the affair. He had told her about the affair on the night that Eric died. Detective Morgan also said that Daryl looked very weary. He looked like he was absolutely prepared to go to prison. He basically was like, well, if I go talk to you, am I going to come back? Should I say goodbye to my family? And he's like, you're going to come back from this one. I can't promise for how long. I think literally he said, you don't have to bring your toothbrush this time. He said that also his wife, Yvette, looked very resigned to her husband potentially going to jail as well. It looked like they had had some serious talks. Daryl mentioned that he had been sleeping in the guest room since he had admitted the affair. They looked like they knew something was coming down the pike. 
And so Daryl went out to the police car, the Crown Vic, with Detective Morgan. And he said that he just could tell that this guy was not malevolent in nature. He said he looked like an intellectual. He looked like kind of like an absent-minded professor. And he looked like he had gotten himself into a very bad situation that had spiraled out of his control. And he said, having been a homicide detective for almost three decades, he could tell a stone cold killer when he saw it. And Daryl just wasn't it. He said, if anything, he felt almost a tiny bit of sympathy for this guy who had just ruined his life for a woman who did not actually care about him. And so he says this on the Forensic Files as well. And he told it to author Amanda Lamb. He said, Daryl, you've been used. I think you've been used by a woman. And he said that Daryl looked directly into his eyes and said, yeah, and she's done a good job of it. Can we flip on her? Yeah. But unfortunately, before he said anything else, Daryl said, my attorney is going to be here any minute and I can't say anything else to you and got out of the car. So that was it. That was all Detective Morgan got out of him. He also found out, speaking of that attorney, that this was January 21st when they do the search and when they really start investigating Daryl. But they found out that Daryl had hired his defense attorney only six days after Eric died, almost two months earlier. That's a little premature. A little premature. So yeah, they absolutely knew what was coming down. So Detective Morgan knew that Daryl was going to be the linchpin in the case against Anne and every fiber of his being wanted to take Daryl into custody to protect that asset. But without the DA's sign-off, there was no possibility of doing that. So Morgan followed orders, but he could not shake the sense that something really bad was going to happen if they didn't arrest Daryl. And unfortunately, his gut feeling proved prophetic. The very next day, Daryl Willard was found dead in his garage (gasps) by his wife and his two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. No. Yeah, trigger warning, guys, for suicide. I probably should have cautioned you like at the top of the episode, but I'm just going to talk about it really quickly for like 30 seconds if you want to skip ahead. Daryl had shot himself to death in their garage. It was terrible, too. So earlier in the day, like a front page news article had come out naming him as somebody who had been out with the victim the night that he started getting sick and had been discovered to be an affair partner of the wife of the victim. So his name was out there. It was splashed all over the place. As a result, this is a Monday. And it sounds like his wife had probably picked up their daughter wherever she was getting care and had driven home. So when she gets there, there's news vans outside of her house. And she's trying to ignore them. And she's trying to pull her car into the garage and she opens the garage door and there he is, dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound and the video cameras are there live. And so she immediately shuts it and goes into the house and calls 911 and you can hear her 911 call in the forensic files. I mean, she's devastated. But the fact that it happened in in front of the media, it's just excruciating. And I also, my heart went out to her so much because she has a two and a half year old. It's about the age of our babies, Andy. And 
thinking about that moment and trying to shield your child from it, and there's also news reporters outside, and you're dealing with it yourself and trying to call 911, it is overwhelming to think about. Did the news reporters show any respect or? Oh, I don't think so. It was actually kind of shocking because they didn't expect that graphic content to be shown on live television. So I I don't really know exactly how they handled it, but they did have to clear out of the way anyway because all of the emergency personnel and the police then arrived. So Morgan found out about this on the news. He was watching the news when he saw this. And I mean, he was devastated in the way that you are devastated about something that you saw coming, that you knew was going to happen. Yeah but you had no way to prevent. He said that this is one of the aspects of the case that still haunts him because if he had been in a jail cell, he wouldn't have been able to kill himself or at least it would have been a lot harder to do so. Yeah, but that's not on him. That's on the ADA. Yes. Well, Daryl did leave a suicide note and it read, I'm sorry to leave you, my wife, my beautiful daughter, my family and friends like this. The past year has been full of anxiety, sickness, and pain. Today, I have been accused of an action for which I am not responsible. I have taken no one's life, save my own. The world looks black to me. All I can see is the smearing of my name, pain caused to my family, personal humiliation, and probable economic ruin. I deeply regret my manner of leaving the world, but hope that any pain caused will not linger, at least not in the fashion that my remaining here might engender. I have been blessed with a life full of love and caring. I love you, my family. I love you, my daughter. I love you all. Oh, it's just such a senseless tragedy for these people within... On top of another tragedy. On top of another tragedy. You know, within two months, event went from finding out her husband had an affair to discovering he might have been part of a murder plot to then having to deal with this whole finding of his body in such a terrible way. And, you know, there's a lot of attention very deservedly about how the Miller family suffered. And they're fantastic people. I mean, they're also interviewed by Amanda Lamb, and they're just a very caring people. But there's sadly, like, not a lot of sympathy, I feel like, or as much attention paid to the Willard family. And I understand that it's because Daryl made terrible choices, and he chose to end his life after doing things that devastated his family. But Yvette and their daughter didn't make those choices. And so they're having to weather this storm with also the added shame that the attention has brought them. And I just feel really, really bad about that. And then also they kind of talk about, I think they talk about this in the forensic files, but it's talked about how at the end of the day, many people believe that Daryl had a crisis of conscience and that he was actually a good guy in essence because he reportedly spilled Eric's beer after Eric only drank half of it. Okay. And so it's believed that maybe on the 11th hour, he decided not to go through with it, but the damage was already done. I guess we'll never know because obviously Daryl took his secrets to the grave Or did he? Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Okay, we're going to put a pin in that, and I'm going to circle back in a little bit. In the meantime, Detective Morgan had an uphill battle to prove that Anne was behind the poisoning without Daryl. Because now, at this point, Anne could pin it all on Daryl. I mean, they have the same access to the poison. 
He was the one who was with him. So what they needed to do was prove that Eric had been poisoned more than once and that at those other times, it had been Anne who had done the poisoning, if that was the case. So they have to find out first if that's the case and then then they have to prove it, which are kind of the same thing. So this is definitely like the focus of the Forensic Files episode. They end up taking his hair and processing it. And you can tell on the hair when there's been an arsenic poisoning or event. And the scientist who's on Forensic Files says, you know, it's not perfect. You can't say like, well, this happened at November 19th at 10 a.m. But you can get the general time frame. And what they do is his hair was long enough at the time of his death that they could see about six months of growth. So they have a six-month window on his hair, and then they basically chop it up into the six sections and then measure where in that section it falls to get an idea of what time of the month it was that he was poisoned. So that's what they're doing here. And they discover that, yes, indeed, he had been poisoned more than once. And some of it was obvious. Detective Morgan always thought that Anne had poisoned him that evening with the chicken and rice when his parents were out to dinner because that was when he relapsed after recovering. And that was proven correct by the forensic evidence. Amazing. Yep. So they knew that for sure. And they knew that was a time when she was alone with him. And they were shocked that it looked like he had also been poisoned while he was in the hospital during his first two-week stay when he was not recovering and they had to transfer him. So they're like, well, that's interesting. And they found out that he had also been poisoned several times earlier that summer, earlier in where the hair growth was towards the end with much smaller portions, including a time that his family said he was at a family reunion in July and they assumed he had food poisoning. So it's like, even though Daryl poisoned him the first time, he would have recovered from that. Yes. And it turns out it wasn't really the first time. It was the first really big amount of poison. And they think because she was a scientist, she should have known how much it took to kill him and that she was trying to set up a pattern of him being ill so that maybe it would just look after six months of an illness or maybe longer where he had had to call out of work. He was sick in front of his family. They were like, we don't know what it was, but after a long illness, he succumbed. So they think that that's maybe what she was trying to set up and that if she did indeed poison him in the hospital, like it looked like she was panicking because he hadn't died from the bowling alley portion, which could be because he didn't drink the entire beer. Who knows? That's like your chance to be like, do I actually want to do this? And for her, it sounds like the answer was yes. No um, remorse or reconsideration or pause, let's wait a second, or maybe this is God helping him because this is the wrong thing to do, being that they're religious. I mean, there are so many opportunities for her to have backed down. Oh, so many, especially when he came home and he was on the mend. And he's supposed to be in the comfort and safety of his home. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So now that they have proof that he was poisoned more than once in times that Anne 
was the common denominator about who would be preparing any sort of food and drink for him beyond that one beer served to him by Daryl. Detective Morgan's like, all right, now we're going to arrest her, right? And that still wasn't enough for the ADA. Are you fucking serious? <laughs> no, and that was pretty much Morgan's response. Oh my God, I want to flip this desk right now. Yeah, and they said, though, that the reason why was because there was seemingly no motive because Eric did have a life insurance policy, but it only would have paid out at $100,000, which is more like $175,000 in today's money. But still, Anne especially made some good money. They weren't particularly hard up. It was not an amount that is going to set you up for life by any means. So they were like, it just doesn't seem like that could be the motivation. So if it's not money, then maybe the motive was love. We know that Anne did not love Daryl. He was utilitarian. She was using him. But didn't you say there were two affairs? There was two affairs. So she had this other affair partner, and her email suggested this guy, Carl, who was another scientist, by the way. She really has a type. Yeah, this lady. And it suggested that this guy, Carl, was the real object of her affection. Anne and Carl had met in a professional capacity, and though he lived in San Francisco and she was obviously in North Carolina, they struck up an email correspondence that soon turned sexual and romantic in nature. The affair started in 1997, three years before Eric was murdered. It was clear from the emails that Anne was way more into Carl than Carl was into Anne. She had some very cringe, flirty emails. She wrote an entire short story about and for him after they spent a long weekend together. She called it, the fuck does she have this much time? <laughs> well, she didn't have a kid yet either. Because remember, she was trying now. This is when she's going through all these fertility treatments and trying to have a baby with her husband while she's also conducting this cross-country affair. She would go with him to places like she would come up with reasons professionally that she had to go to a conference or something. And apparently, Eric did have a sense about this one. They found a note that he had written her saying that he was not happy about how she was communicating with this guy, Carl. So he had some sort of sense that something wasn't right. And when the police brought that up to Anne, she said, well, he's just jealous of the guys I work with. I work with 93% males because of the, the field that I'm in. And he's just a jealous guy, which everyone said was not the case. She would go out to San Francisco to see him. I guess they went camping in the Redwoods. They had gone to um, Tahoe together. They did a lot of stuff together when she could see him. And now from his perspective, he did not like being pulled into this. He had nothing to do with the murder. He had no idea she was going to murder her husband. He was kept in the dark about it. And he, I think he did feel guilty about this whole situation later, but he knew she was married. And that was pretty much the only thing he was guilty of was willingly and knowingly sleeping with a married woman. And from his perspective, because he was later interviewed by Detective Morgan, he was just like, oh, it's not my marriage. I didn't really think about it. And I didn't really see her that often. And I didn't really care about her that much. So it just, it didn't occur to him that this was going to be this huge driving force in her life. It was also like she would do things for him, like send him presents and 
take him on trips. Like she apparently in May of 1999 flew Carl out for a long sexy weekend at a beach house that she had rented in the Outer Banks. And she had paid for everything, paid for his plane flights, paid for the house, paid for all their meals because he basically said, I'm not going to come because I can't afford it. And she was like, don't worry, I'll take care of everything. This was when they were at the end of their fertility journey. In fact, she was already pregnant with Claire when she flew him out for this sexy weekend. So as you can imagine, they probably put lots and lots of money into IVF and these fertility treatments that are never covered by insurance and especially not in 1997, 98, 99. So apparently Eric had asked his parents for a loan to cover some of their bills at this point. So she's going off and spending what amounted to several thousand dollars to treat her lover to a long weekend in a rented beach house while Eric was swallowing his pride and asking his parents for a little extra scratch to cover their fertility treatment bills and home bills. They did look into also whether Claire could have been Carl's, but because they saw each other so sporadically, the times didn't match up. The baby was definitely Eric's. And also IVF, so you know whose sperm it is. So there's that as well. So the lovers continued to stay in touch well into Eric's hospitalization. On November 23rd, Anne had actually emailed Carl and she said in this email, so now at this point, he has been in the hospital for over a week. She told Carl that Eric's sickness was deathly, saying that essentially he's on his deathbed. He's probably not going to make it. And she said that taking care of him was a huge burden because she had to also take care of her young daughter. And now she had to deal with her in-laws on top of it. So she's complaining to her lover in California about having to care for her dying husband and deal with her in-laws. She wrote, I'd throw my own Christmas party if I thought you'd be able to come. I'd buy a house at the beach too. I could so use a friend. She then told him to call her at her house and said it was safe because her in-laws were oblivious to who was calling her. Yeah, because they're caring for their sick son. I can't. Can you imagine also being Doris and Varys and finding all of this out? No. Ugh. And also the sisters, they all really, really liked Anne. And they all loved that Eric was so over the moon for her. He was madly in love with her. So when all this came out, it was just a complete shocking betrayal. Carl did, it seems like he ceased communication a little while after Eric died, I think, around the time she started getting investigating, probably. Detective Morgan believed that Anne had killed just to satisfy her selfish fantasies. She did not want to be burdened with a husband, even an ex-husband, who could fight her for custody or determine where she could live or not live because you can't just take the kid and cross the country. So how much better for her ego and for her public persona to be considered the grieving widow rather than the adulterous ex-wife. Here's the problem here is you have to actually grieve and it doesn't seem like she is. I mean, she did trick everyone right off the bat. I mean, the original detectives and the Millers very much did believe that she was completely innocent at the beginning. But not our dude. No. And when, you know, when you dig into those emails, all of a sudden a different story is being told. Yep. 
But that adulterous murderer or murderess was slipping through Morgan's fingers. The day after Daryl's suicide, Anne quit her job and moved two hours away to the seaside town of Wilmington, North Carolina, which is also the setting for Dawson's Creek if you are an elder millennial. So she totally could. She can get up and move two hours away if she wants because she hasn't been charged with anything. She's not doing anything wrong in moving. I guess her sister lived out that way. So she's just moving to be with family. It doesn't look sketchy at all. Except for only six months after Eric's death, she already had a serious boyfriend. And this guy was a part-time electrician and a Christian rocker. I couldn't find a lot of his music available. So I would say more of a aspiring Christian rocker. There you go. Yeah. Named Paul Kantz, who would soon become husband number two. Wow. Yeah. So she is just getting on with her merry life. And by now, by this point, Eric's sisters and parents realized how deep the betrayal had gone. And the first tip off was actually when they were talking about the burial plans. And Eric, I don't know if it was in line with the Catholic custom or what, but he'd always wanted to be buried in this family plot. And Anne had instead, without the approval or permission from his family, cremated him almost immediately and buried his remains in North Carolina. They were so perplexed to why she had cremated him when that was against his wishes. Because she doesn't care. Well, she wanted to get rid of evidence, too. I don't think she realized at that time that they had taken hair samples when he was in the hospital as well. So she's like, let's just incinerate him and hopefully incinerate the evidence. Unbelievable. So, yeah, that was their first tip off that something was not right And then, of course, they soon discovered that she had been in cahoots with this guy, Daryl, who she had previously told them that he was a stalker and he was just obsessed with her. And so now they're finding out that there's all these emails between them. There's nine hours of phone calls while their son was dying. So they're trying to ask her these questions. There's even a recorded conversation with one of the sisters and Anne, that the sister did on her own volition. It wasn't even something the police asked her to do, where she was pushing for answers. And Anne basically said, I'm doing everything my attorney told me to do. I really hope you don't walk down this path because it would be a shame if you never saw Claire again, kind of. Wow. Yeah. So she like went there. She's like, I really don't want us to have a contentious relationship. I don't know what I would tell my daughter about why she can't see her father's family. So it was just very manipulative and vicious. Yeah, and vicious. Like, she doesn't come out and say it. She just said, oh, well, you know, it would be a shame if this affects our relationship and I have to tell Claire she can't see you anymore. I mean, that's so manipulative. Mm Mm-hmm. This poor sister is just, like, getting so frustrated. She's like, well, what was the relationship? Like, can you just tell me what's really going on, Anne? And she's like, no. (laughs) And then, of course, now she has moved two hours away. She has this whole new life. She has this whole new person. And their son doesn't exist anymore. He's gone. And so this was a very painful and confusing time. And it got even worse because the ADA, who Morgan had been butting heads with this whole time, 
actually held a meeting with them and he said, look, I might not ever pursue charges against Anne because I personally do not think this is a winnable case. What is he banging her as well? (laughs) Well, it seemed like to Morgan and to the Millers that he was more interested in protecting his win number and count and reputation. I hate when that shit gets in the way. Yeah, that it was like an image thing for him rather than really going for justice. So Morgan was like, no, this is not happening. And this is really around the time that he becomes very, very bonded to the Miller family because he's like, I'm going to get something that he can't ignore. I'm going to find some evidence that is definitely going to allow us to arrest her no matter what. And at this point, he had been like kind of like forced into being a sergeant, even though he wanted to stay like a homicide detective. And he was soon he was reaching retirement age. So he really wanted to make this happen before he retired from the force. He's also like he's got like four beautiful grown children. His last youngest daughter was about to go to college. I mean, he's ready to solve this and get justice for this family and and move on at this point. So he goes to Yvette Willard. Now, obviously, she's not super psyched about being more involved in this case than she already has been, but she agrees to speak with him to her credit. And she told Morgan that she did not know what exactly the level of Daryl's involvement in the poisoning was, but she said that Daryl was very afraid that he was going to get arrested. And the one thing she knew for sure was that his defense attorney, a guy named Rick Gammon, had told Daryl that he had to expect that he was going to potentially be charged with attempted murder based on what Daryl had told his attorney privately. Yeah, because of course Daryl was honest. Yes, Daryl told apparently his attorney almost everything, but Yvette did not know what everything was. That's all she could tell Morgan. So Morgan's like, okay, well, if Rick Gammon knew enough to tell the Willards that they should prepare for him being arrested for attempted murder, then he knew a lot. So what else did Daryl tell his attorney? Now, legally, he can't get that information out of Rick Gammon because it's protected by attorney-client privilege even after Daryl's death. So it's funny because I guess they, they had gone way back. They knew each other and they were speaking about, they got on the phone about a different case. So Rick Gammon actually called Morgan about a completely different case. He was representing a client who had accidentally shot her husband and Morgan had investigated it and found that it was actually an accidental shooting. And so they're on the phone and he said, yeah, don't worry about it. We're not pressing charges against your client. We looked at the case and we realized that it was truly an accidental shooting. However, I got you on the phone there. So hi, buddy. When are you going to tell us what Daryl Willard told you that could break our case? And he said, I'm never going to be able to tell you that unless a judge orders me to. (gasps) Thanks, good old Rick. Yep. And and Morgan in the book is like, I just want to be very clear. Rick Gammon is so professional. He did everything by the book. He didn't give anything away. But yeah, that was a little like head nod right there. So, of course, he goes to the ADA. Again, this ADA says, absolutely not. We will never break attorney-client privilege. 
this is a core tenet of the U.S. justice system. We can't do it. We're not doing it. Oh, you want to talk about getting justice, Mr. ADA? So Morgan goes over his head and goes to the district attorney. And the district attorney's like, this is going to be a hard one to fight because they have to have a hearing that would compel Rick Gammon to break attorney-client privilege. He's like, but let's have at it. So the district attorney does it. He's the one who files for this hearing. And, I mean, it was a big deal. They immediately pushed it up to the Supreme Court of North Carolina because this would set a very poor precedent if they pushed it through in a certain way. It took two long years of waiting before the Supreme Court finally handed down a decision. And they said, yes, Rick would be forced to break confidentiality, but in a very narrow way. They still want to protect that privilege, but they want to help get the information out that is going to solve another case. I think that's fair. It's totally fair. They said that he would be compelled to reveal any information that Daryl had told him that concerned a third party, aka Anne, as long as it did not incriminate Daryl. Because he's still like acting as his lawyer. He's still acting as his lawyer, even if it's in his memory. Which, by the way, Yvette was in this fight too. And she said, tell him, tell him everything. I'm his next of kin or whatever. Yeah, she lost her partner. She's like, I want justice too. I mean, if my husband was a dupe in this lady's murder and then as a result of his involvement, he killed himself, I'd want to get her too. And so even Yvette was saying, you can waive it, but. But that's not the client. She can't waive it on his behalf. So it's still not incriminating anything about Daryl. But that means that if he told the attorney, hey, Anne gave me the poison and she made me or told me that I had to or compelled me in some way to poison him and then I did, he's not going to be able to share that because that would incriminate Daryl. So now they have to find out, well, is there anything that he can tell us that doesn't involve Daryl? And that was a big if, of course. And Rick Gammon would eventually reveal that there was something that, given this narrow scope, he could and was compelled by the court to reveal. And this had been a long time coming. By the time they finally heard what Rick Gammon had to say that Daryl said to him, I mean, it had been four years since the murder Anne was remarried. She was living in a beautiful house in Wilmington. She had a great job at a different pharmaceutical company. Her life was golden. And the Millers had had to put up with four years of dealing with the person they believed was their son's killer in order to see their niece and grandchild. Detective Morgan was actually retired at this point when they finally revealed this information. And so this is from the statement that Rick Gammon eventually gave. He wrote, Mr. Willard stated that on one recent occasion, he had met Mrs. Miller in a parking lot. This time frame is after what we believed was the initial poisoning, after the bowling alley, when he was already in the hospital. So Eric's in the hospital at this point, at that first stretch. He said they had a conversation while in an SUV. He stated that during his conversation with Mrs. Miller, she was crying and she told him that she had been to the hospital where Mr. Miller had been admitted. 
She stated to Mr. Willard that she was by herself in the room with Mr. Miller for a period of time. She then told Mr. Willard that she took a syringe and needle from her purse and injected the contents of the syringe into Mr. Miller's IV. Oh, my God. And they already have the forensic evidence that backs this up. Yep, yep. They had the evidence before they had this statement. Upon being questioned as to the contents of the syringe, Mr. Willard either stated that the substance was from work or that Mrs. Miller told him it was from work. He then stated that he had asked Mrs. Miller why she had done this, and she replied, I don't know. Mr. Willard surmised that Mrs. Miller was attempting to end Mr. Miller's suffering from his illness with these actions. Although Mr. Gammon and Mr. Fitzhugh, another attorney, do not recall specifically whether Mr. Willard or Mrs. Miller used the word arsenic with reference to the contents of the syringe, it was clear that the substance contained in the syringe was poisonous. Mr. Willard then stated he knew nothing further of the circumstances surrounding Eric Miller's death, and he also stated that he had not told anyone, including his wife, about Anne's statements to him. Wow. Dark. Just like that, the words of a dead man would be enough to finally arrest Anne. Unbelievable, right? I'm just, yeah, it's just sad. It's really sad. It's really, really, really sad. So Detective Morgan was then asked to come out of retirement specifically to see this case through trial. And after a grand jury indictment on September 27th, 2004, Anne was finally arrested. So Anne went into the proceedings pretty confident, but she was shaken when her bail was set at $3 million. There was no way that she was going to be able to post bond. Morgan said in the book Deadly Dose, it was a bond that was impossible for any person who was not a well-connected Colombian drug dealer to make. Lol. (laughs) So where's Claire? Is she with Eric's family? Unfortunately, at this time, Claire was with Anne's sister. Because she had not been married to Paul long enough that he was really, like, for sure a yeah, father figure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just because Anne's a murderer doesn't mean that Anne's sister is. Yeah, and Anne's sister had kids and lived in the same area, so they frequently saw each other. Yeah, easier transition. Exactly. Ultimately, the state, with the Miller family's permission, decided to make a deal with Anne. There was some concern on their part that Anne could charm a jury, or at least all she needed was one guy, one person on that jury to be charmed by her. And and like we've seen, one person can make all the difference to an acquittal or a hung jury. And they were just a little concerned that she would be able to pull it off because she had pulled off so much so far. And they also kind of just really wanted to hear her say it, to hear her be an open court and say yes. I killed your son. I did it. And for Anne, I think that she was eager to make a deal because already she knew that things were going to look really bad for her. She had already had the deck stacked against her with the large bond. And all of the newspapers and the media would have covered her affairs, her cringy emails and short stories, her dead lover's reveal, and the fact that she potentially drove this man to suicide, that she poisoned her husband in the hospital. This was all going to be front page news. So I think that her sham, like nice Christian mother persona could not handle this. 
So this was, I think, a big motivating factor of her wanting to take a deal and hopefully go quietly away. In November of 2005, Anne was sentenced to a minimum of 25 years in prison, which means that with some of the time served, the earliest Anne will be released is September of 2029. So she's still in there. That's a long time. I feel like as far as deals go, we've seen some deals where people get off like crazy and it's very frustrating. This was a long time. I mean, she missed most of her daughter's life to this point. And by the time she gets out, her daughter will be turning 30 relatively An soon. An adult. Yeah. yeah. I think this was, well, you cannot ever say that there's an appropriate punishment for taking another human life, of course. This is more in line of yeah. a punishment than some we've seen. And a deal that makes sense. Exactly. The frustrating thing about this, though, was in court, Anne did say yes. She tearfully was crying through saying yes in court when she was asked if she intentionally caused the death of her husband, Derek Miller. But she then had her lawyer read a statement instead of her actually reading it or addressing her in-laws. And it kind of seemed like it was like, I'm sorry I got involved with a situation that ultimately ended up with Eric dying. Like, yeah. So to this day, I do not believe she's ever truly taken any sort of responsibility for what she's done. It's been very convenient for her to say that it was all Daryl and that's it, which I believe was kind of the safety plan all along. I think that Had the forensic evidence not turned up the fact that he had been poisoned so many times, I think she was like, number one, hoping that they just wouldn't think he was poisoned at all. But number two, she's a woman of science. If they do find out, she'll just say that Daryl, who had all the same access to this poison, she did, and was the one who gave him the beer, was the one who did it because he was obsessed with her. That's what she was gearing up, and it failed. The Miller family did get to deliver some blistering statements to Anne during the sentencing. And I could read all of them because they're sad and powerful and meaningful. I think I was most heartbroken and moved by what his mother said. And Doris Miller said the following at Anne's sentencing. Eric was a kind and loving and considerate young man. He was a wonderful son and brother and a wonderful father to his daughter in the short time that he spent with her. He was going to accomplish so much. He wanted to help mankind. He graduated from Purdue and I came down here and I remember he discussed the accomplishments he made when he got his doctorate in biochemistry. He was so happy that he was going to do his research in pediatric AIDS. He wanted to make a difference. He wanted to help children. He wanted to help people. But I most of all remember his wonderful smile and the gleam in his eye when he held his infant daughter. He was such a proud father, and he loved her so much. And one day he said to me, he said, Mom, you always said you loved me. He says, now I understand exactly how much. Anne's sentencing was a victory for the Millers and a victory for Detective Morgan, but it did not mean that the family would ever truly get closure. And this is something Andy and I have talked about at length off the podcast as well, is that we struggle for the right word sometimes for when a cold case is solved or when a family recovers the remains of their loved one, the word is not closure. There's just no word for it because a family will never feel closure and will never be the same ever. Never, never. And that's what Detective Morgan said when he was talking to the author, Amanda Lamb. 
he said that like a lot of people grossly like oversimplify the thought, the idea of closure. He said, these cases are never, ever closed for the victim's family. They're closed for the police department. They're closed for the court system. They're closed for the prosecutors. The lawyers say they're closed, but there's never any closure from the death of your brother, your sister, your wife, your husband, your daughter, your son, your best friend. You never get closure in a case where somebody is murdered. It will always be a gaping, festering wound that will haunt you forever. Yeah. I mean, that's the case with like death in general. But then when it's taken away from you by someone else, it's a completely different level. Especially if they suffered. Yeah. And if it was someone who you were supposed to trust and love and be a member of your family. It's sickening. Unbelievable. Well, a couple things that did help in moving the Miller family closer to healing was that they won joint custody of Claire. So great. They were able to be a big part of her life growing up. And they also were allowed to take custody of Eric's ashes and give him a burial in Indiana. Five and a half years after his murder, Eric Miller was finally laid to rest, surrounded by those who loved him, his six-year-old daughter, and the homicide investigator who refused to give up on his case. Ugh, legend. In conclusion, man, never underestimate the perseverance of a veteran homicide detective who is going for you like a dog with a bone. Seriously. And also, like, just get a divorce. This guy seemed like an absolute dreamboat savior of the world. And you can't just divorce him for your, like, romantic flings? I just don't get it. Just get a divorce. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love and police work so you can get that bitch in the end. <laughs> love I don't want to wait for that bitch <laughs> to get arrested. Yes. Bye. Bye.